You're listening to TIP. On today's episode, we sit down with legendary investor Tom Gaynor, co-CEO of Markel Corporation. Markel has been referred to as a baby Berkshire because it's structured similarly to Berkshire Hathaway and has produced stellar results. Tom has been producing investment returns in the high teens for Markel Corporation for over 30 years and was kind enough to give us incredible insights into his investment strategies and philosophies. This was a very fun and wide-ranging discussion, so sit back and enjoy our discussion with Tom Gaynor. You are listening to The Investor's Podcast, where we study the financial markets and read the books that influence self-made billionaires the most. We keep you informed and prepared for the unexpected. Welcome to the Investors Podcast. I'm your host, Dick Broderson, and today I'm here with my co-host, Trey Lockerbie. We are honored to be joined today by Tom Gaynor. Tom, thank you so much for making time to educate our community about investing. Thanks for having me. So Tom, the first thing I want to talk about today is your evolution as a value investor. You've been in the business over 30 years. I know you started with the Benjamin Graham model, followed Warren Buffett very closely, Markel has sort of adopted the Berkshire Hathaway structure, and you've been investing that portfolio for 30 years now. I'm just curious, over that time, how has your strategy and philosophy evolved, and how has it stayed the same? Again, thank you very much for having me. It's very flattering. Preparing for our chat today, I did listen to a number of episodes, and you do a professional job and really bring on a lot of very interesting people, a lot of very intelligent people. And a lot of people who are talking about some very important, complicated, thoughtful topics. And I don't know how to do any of that. So don't quite know how I scored an invitation, but thank you. And I suspect that the nature of our conversation will be a bit different than some of the things that some of your other guests have talked about on different topics. But thank you for having me. Over the course of the last 30 years, and, and that actually describes my time frame here at Markel. I was in the investment business for six years before that. And frankly, one of the ways I came to be interested in investing is, frankly, I can't remember a time that I wasn't because my father had his office in our house and he was a CPA and a small town businessman. And as fathers and sons would talk about sports and football and baseball, we did that. But we also talked about investing because he was a businessman and adored my father. So I just sort of grew up around it. In the course of the last 30 years, my investing style has changed somewhat. And I would hope that that would be the case for anybody who's been practicing a craft for 30 years. This is not a static world. It's dynamic and it changes. And I think there are some fundamental principles which endure and are timeless and last eternally. But there are other things that tactically change. And it's important to hold fast to the things that don't change, but be flexible and adaptive to the things that do. Let's start there. You famously identified four pillars in your investment philosophy. Could you please elaborate on that? Sure. And that might be a helpful way of framing the things that have stayed the same and some of the things that have been different and adapted and dynamic as time has gone by. So I've written in the Markel Annual Report and spoken for years that there are four fundamental lenses that I look at any equity investment, any ownership interest through. So I want to buy a business that's profitable earns good returns on capital, and doesn't use too much leverage to do it. Number two, I want those businesses to be run by people 
of equal measures of talent and integrity. Number three, I want the business to have reinvestment opportunities and the ability to grow or pretty good capital discipline, meaning the ability to do good acquisitions or pay dividends or do share repurchases. And fourth, I want to do that at a relatively what I've called fair price. So that's the thumbnail sketch of what I'm looking to do. And that really has been consistent for decades. Now, let's go into each of those to think about the ways in which they represent eternal principles and some things that would recognize the fact that things need to change. So buying a good business with good returns on capital that doesn't use too much leverage to do it. Well, the one thing that is consistent through all time is the notion of not using too much leverage. Because if you have a business which has okay returns on capital, but uses leverage to magnify those and get better returns on equity, there's nothing wrong with that. But that introduces a degree of fragility to the business that concerns me. I'm not anywhere near as smart or as intelligent or on the edge of things as as many of the guests you would have on this program. So what I want to do is create a margin of safety, margin of error, whatever you want to call it, so that if I'm wrong, I'm not going to lose money. And to be investing in a business that has a lot of leverage, that introduces an area of fragility to things. It introduces the ability that you can have the cards pulled from your hand in the middle of playing your hand and wipe out kind of risk that would really diminish, wipe out your returns at any particular instance. So I want to stay away from it. That's been consistent for decades. Now, among the things that's tempting in today's world, as we live in a period of ultra low interest rates, it's rational and logical to get cheap debt financing when you're looking at running a business. So I don't want to express that as an absolute. It's a relative term. The idea of using some leverage in today's world, I mean, the government's very much pushing you towards doing that, and you probably should do some of it, but not too much of it. And it's a pretty gray line of an appropriate amount of leverages, but without tipping over into too much. Structure also goes into that in the sense that if you have overnight line of credit kind of money that reprices regularly, that is a substantially and fundamentally different thing than having 30-year fixed rate financing. So for instance, a couple of my children have bought houses in the last couple of years at 30-year fixed rates, mortgages that create rent payments, I mean, mortgage payments that are lower than rent payments, I have encouraged them to incur debt to buy a house. And that's a very, very different thing than having floating rate debt. So that's consistent. Good businesses, by definition, earn good returns on capital, but the names of those businesses change over time. So when I look back and think about a company that actually fits the test of being a good business today, with the way that the world is changing and the way that the pace of change is accelerated and the forces unleashed by technological change, there are businesses that were fine businesses 5, 10, 20, 30 years ago that aren't anymore. So you always need to be on your toes and you always need to be thoughtful about what businesses are, in fact, fit that definition of good businesses or not, because returns on capital typically don't straight line. They're either kind of getting better or they're getting worse. So the ability to have something that's not falling off a cliff strikes me as a fundamentally important thing. So I look at that, and that's really one of the reasons you go to work every day is because the names of those businesses change over time. You have to stay on your toes about that sort of thing. Point number two Managements with equal measures of talent and integrity, that's, again, enduring. 
as my father used to say, you can't do a good deal with a bad person. That doesn't change. I don't care what industry you're talking about. I don't care what geography you're talking about. I don't care what time frame you're talking about. The idea of getting into business with somebody who doesn't share your basic values and is a person of similar integrity as to what you have, that strikes me as non-sustainable. It strikes me as somebody's going to win and somebody's going to lose. So I, I try to involve myself in win-win transactions and win-win relationships. And if you're dealing with somebody has an integrity challenge, issue, whatever, maybe it'll go well for him. But I think somewhere along the line, it doesn't for me. So I just try to avoid those as much as possible. And that's been consistent over decades. I think the older you get and the more experiences you have, probably the better your skills are at making some of those judgments. And also maybe the more patience you have about being willing to forgo what may seem attractive, but you have a little tinge in your bones or a little bit of just unease in your gut tells you "Mm, something about this doesn't square up. It's easier to walk away from those things when you've been doing it for a long time and have done well enough that you're not as tempted by that sort of thing as perhaps you might have been when you were younger and less mature. The reinvestment side, again, that ties to the notion about the good business and the good returns on capital. Because again, you can have a business, which has a wonderful history of indeed being able to reinvest the money that it has made. But the ability to reinvest the next dollar, it's not about the past, it's about the future. And you have to be thoughtful and think about what are the conditions and circumstances for this business going forward? Do those incremental dollars earn better returns or worse returns? Because your returns as an investor will converge towards what the incremental returns on the incremental dollars are over time. Now, the fourth point, buying things at a fair price, that's probably the area where things have changed the most for me. So starting out, my original training was as an accountant, the original Ben Graham sort of security analysis and the time in which he wrote that book in the 1930s right in the aftermath of following the Great Depression sort of security analysis, there were things you could buy for less than the networking capital that the companies own. So it was a very straightforward sort of analysis and 100% appropriate at the time to think that way. And those were the original textbooks that I learned from and studied. And it's an accountant's mindset and sort of general nature to think that makes sense. It's also something that's external to yourself. So when you're looking and doing calculations and writing things down on a piece of paper or doing a spreadsheet, you're looking at something else and you're guiding yourself in large measure by what those numbers and formulas and ideas suggest. When you start to morph into the more qualitative aspects of things, you can't put them in a spreadsheet. You can't write them down. You have to make an internal judgment about these qualitative factors that it's not verifiable. And you can't say definitively yes or no, or put too precise a number to it. I think that is something that if you're young and you're doing that, you may be confident, but I think you're probably wrong. When you're older, you may have less confidence because you have scars. You've seen things, you know the mistakes that you've made, but you don't overestimate your ability to make those sort of judgments and you know how important they are. So you're willing to make them anyway and proceed with trepidation and humility. And that's just a softer skill. It's a skill that goes along with maturity in many ways. And I think that's the biggest single factor that has changed 
over the course of the 30 years that you speak of, where relying more and more on that aspect of things and approaching it quite differently than what would have been the case 30 years ago. Wow. There's a lot to unpack there. And I want to start with the price and determining the intrinsic value of something. And you talked about this quantitative approach very early in your career and how that's evolved. I think a lot of our listeners can relate to that because a lot of our listeners, they have day jobs and they're sitting on maybe some savings they want to put to work, not necessarily entrusting just anyone to run the money for them, looking to learn how to invest for themselves, which I think is great. But I think when you start out learning about Ben Graham and and that sort of quantitative style, it's easy to find yourself going down the rabbit hole of stock screeners and looking at these ratios and then buying this basket of stocks just based on a few different numbers. And you're kind of missing that qualitative approach. So lately, I've been looking at it sort of like a a valuation sandwich where you can use the quantitative approach, use the screeners, filter down to a universe of stocks that's worth digging in more into, but then really doing the work on the qualitative stuff because that's what fills in the sandwich. That's what's in the middle. Understanding the story of the free cash flows, understanding where those might go. And then the final piece of the sandwich is the IRR calculation. So once you know where the free cash flows are going, running that calculation and then seeing where the price is related to your intrinsic value of it. Is that how you're looking at it? Is it a similar approach? Is it a 80% qualitative, 20% quantitative? How do you look at it? Well, I'm tempted to answer. It's a 47.38% quantitative <laughs> and somewhere between yellow and green Fair enough. for the balance. Uh, I mean, I understand what you're saying, and you're exactly right. And those are the things that, I mean, easy overstates how hard that is. There's real work that needs to be done and should continue to be done by me as well as anybody else pursuing that. And that work is necessary, but I don't think it is sufficient to draw conclusions. It's data that is helpful and points you in directions, and it's data that should be helpful in disproving things. So in terms of the scientific method, you think about things, you have a hypothesis, and what you should be about as a scientist is working hard to disprove your hypothesis, because you know you're wrong, so you need to adapt and adjust and get to the next hypothesis. So for someone to just assert that they do qualitative work without doing the sort of things you're talking about, that's a mistake, and that's not going to be a good answer either, because if you develop a qualitative thesis, the types of things you're talking about should provide some quantitative evidence that at least you're not wrong. It doesn't tell you you're right, but it may tell you that you're probably wrong. And if you're probably wrong, then you should keep working and keep moving along. I think there are other dimensions about what you just brought up. Again, so think about somebody who's younger, somebody perhaps the day job, somebody who perhaps is starting out and you're trying to attract some clients and you're trying to get people to give you money to manage on their behalf. Well, if you look at somebody richer and older who might be a potential client, they're going to ask you some questions about how you do things and why should I believe you? And what skill do you bring to the table versus all the other people who are pitching to manage money for me? And if you just sort of give some soft soap of your thoughtfulness and your understanding of psychology and sociology and human behavior, I think you will struggle to get clients. So I understand the challenges that are involved. Fortunately, and my path would be suggestive of how this can work, there's an element of that that quantitative sort of thing which you're speaking of that can and should be done. And I did that, continue to do that. 
And some of it worked well enough early enough that I gained credibility from some people who had some money to manage and then could build a track record over time such that you have some documentation, some trail of evidence that suggests that this person does have a good sense for this sort of thing or not. And it takes time to do that. And if I was starting over right now, maybe I'd go to dental school. I don't know. I appreciate and understand the challenge that's involved in getting things started. It actually ties to something else that you pointed towards talking about the notion of frugality and living beneath your means. And if I could bring that up now rather than later, it ties to that. Because by definition, if you're living below your means, in one sense, you're already rich. You have whatever lifestyle and needs you have, you've acted and behaved in such a way that costs you less than the money you have coming in. So that means you have excess cash flow to invest. And whether that's $10 a month or $10,000 a month or God knows what, as long as that number is positive, you have the opportunity and the ability to start making capital allocation decisions, to start making investment decisions and building that sort of track record. And you'll create that trail of evidence, even with small sums. But it's very important, among many other reasons in living, that's one of them. It creates all sorts of behavioral advantages. So in other words, by living within your means, you can become a micro Michael, having free cash flow that you can reinvest and compound in other ways. Exactly. It can be a micronaut, but it's extremely important that you be able to do that because there's no way you will ever get the track record and the sense of confidence and the craftsmanship that just comes from actually doing it day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Today's episode is sponsored by Range Rover Sport. Range Rover leads by example with their dynamic design that rises to the occasion. It's got powerful on-road performance and commanding all-terrain capabilities coupled with signature Range Rover refinement. The third generation Range Rover Sport is the most desirable, advanced, and dynamically capable one yet, redefining sporting luxury. It's got advanced cabin technologies such as active noise cancellation and cabin air purification offering next-level comfort and refinement. The purposeful cockpit light driving position sets the tone for a focused interior that promotes exhilarating driver engagement. Award-winning PIVI Pro infotainment is at the heart of the experience and provides intuitive control of the vehicle systems. You can enjoy a dynamic drive and total comfort with optional 22-way adjustable heated and ventilated electric memory front seats with massage function. Design your Range Rover Sport at LandRoverUSA.com. That's LandRoverUSA.com. Our friends at Coriant provide wealth management services centered around you. Coriant's goal is to exceed your expectations and simplify your life. Coriant has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. They are one of the largest integrated fee-only U.S. registered investment advisors, and Coriant has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. They have extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. The teams at Coriant put the collective power of their expertise into building you the custom wealth, investment, and family office solutions that can help you reach your holistic financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. 
For more information, speak with an advisor today at Corient.com. That's spelled C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. That's Corient.com. When Rain Wilson had a great idea, he turned to AT&T Business. They assured him no matter how out there his idea may be, they had his back. So he came up with this, a talking pillow designed to put you to sleep, backed by a reliable network and the only network with built-in security controls. And thus, Sleep With Rain was a hit. Take your business to the next level at business.att.com. That's business.att.com. All right, back to the show. So I love that you just brought up the term craftsmanship because I think that's an underappreciated term as it relates to asset allocation. So for example, I heard you mention in an interview that to become a great investor, yes, it's important to understand the numbers, but you might want to also be able to write a poem. And that really resonated with me having come from the music industry before starting my own company and learning about business and accounting and then investing. I still take with me that bit of craftsmanship into my investing. And I was fascinated to hear you describe it the same way. I'm delighted to hear of your background as a musician. And I'll tell you some stories about that, if I may. So my father, who was an accountant by training, he was a child of the Depression, and he graduated from a junior college in 1936. He was in uh, Carlinville, Illinois, actually uh, got a job in Streeter, Illinois, with uh, Owens, Illinois Glass business that was there. So again, 1936, junior college, went to a very interesting school called Blackburn, which still exists. Tuition, room, and board at the time was $25 a year, which even in the Depression is a good deal. And it was a work college where they had a farm. They raised animals. They did the carpentry, the painting, the electrical work. They cooked the food themselves as students to make it possible to provide an education. But one of the things he did to string together sort of basic existence was he worked as a musician and he played the clarinet and Southern Illinois and Central Illinois kind of had some, uh, call it speakeasy, that, that sort of unlicensed bars, whatever you want to call it. And he worked and helped put food on the table, got married right out of school as a musician. And he played the clarinet his whole life. And he played Dixieland jazz, did it for fun. And I think the mathematical structure that underlies music is a, it's profound, and B, it applies everywhere else. I, too, played the clarinet, not as well as my dad. I do claim to be a professional musician because it was at the apex of my career, I was paid one time to play in a pit band of an orchestra for a show while in college. Made 25 bucks, but the definition of being a professional is that you get paid to do it. So I worked as a professional musician myself, and I have the family heritage and lifestyle of having seen that. And the best music instruction I ever had in my life was a guy who I used to take some piano lessons from. And I was never good at the reading of the music and playing off of written music. More it was improvisation and feel. But I was not a a talented or gifted musician because I was limited. I should have spent more time and effort and discipline on the fundamental attributes of the music rather than just play what you feel. And that particular teacher... We never looked at a note. Everything was about math and music theory and intervals and describing, you know, the chord progressions in mathematical terms. And that clicked with my mind. So feeling, understanding, knowing those patterns and seeing that there's underlying math 
whenever you're listening to a piece of music, but yet there's a sound that makes you feel something. And I don't know about you, maybe if I studied it more, maybe if I was a better mathematician or a more diligent student, I would understand how to describe mathematically the way I feel when I listen to certain pieces of music, but I don't know how to do that. But I know it's real and the effects of things that can be described mathematically do have some sort of non-mathematical emotional dimension to them. And I think music is just a great example of that. I like to say that a portfolio is like an album where you, you don't want a bad song on the album and that the whole process between putting together an investment portfolio and an album is very similar in that you're distilling down information. So you're taking all the sounds possible, all the lyrics, distilling them down into something great. Similarly, thousands of stocks, whittling it down, distilling down the information into a portfolio that will outperform. Do you see it the same way? I think that's a fabulous analogy. You can think about it as an orchestra, a piece of music, an album, whatever you want. It's very rare. I don't think there's any piece of music. I mean, there are some pieces of music that you'll listen to today that you listened to five years ago, 10 years ago, 30 years ago. And they're just sort of these enduring songs, albums, things that they're just lifetime pieces for you. I'd be willing to bet that none of them involve one instrument or one voice. It's an ensemble of some sort. Even a solo act typically has a guitar accompaniment, a rhythm section, a band, whatever. A couple of years ago in the Mark Calania Report, I wrote about Bruce Springsteen and the E Street Band and the, the conclusion that he had come to about the reason that band had endured and been successful over time is because he came to the acceptance of how important everyone else around him was, and they came to the acceptance of how important he was. But the ensemble creation of all that is a loose analogy for a portfolio that has multiple components, multiple pieces, multiple things that knit it together, has a congealed and embedded sound that's attached to it, and is able to endure the fact that sometimes you lose a musician along the way and a new one comes in every once in a while. The Philadelphia Orchestra has been around for a long time. I don't know who plays second violin at the Philadelphia Orchestra, but somebody does. And somebody did 10 years ago, 30 years ago, 50 years ago, 100 years ago. The Philadelphia Orchestra still goes on. So there's all of those pieces which balance out into the production of that ensemble, that music. And it's similar to a portfolio where it's not a single stock, it's not a single idea, it is a collection, it is an amalgamation, it's an ensemble that comes together that works. Shifting gears, Tom, I noticed that you compensate your managers on a five-year rolling average. I find the way you think about your organization very inspiring because it's clearly another piece to the puzzle of asset allocation that all CEOs must consider. Could you talk a bit more about how you evaluate your managers and ensure that they have the right incentives at all times? Well, I think that the five-year compensation calculation, which we, we do have here at, at Markel, is a very valuable mechanism and tool to try to make sure that we're thinking as long-term as possible. And of course, I've been here long enough that there's been a lot of rolling five-year averages. Every year, one rolls on and one rolls off. So I've been here long enough that that really stretches beyond five years towards whatever my lifespan is. So it seems like a square deal for me. It seems like a square deal for our shareholders. And then if things go well for Markel, I get paid. If things don't, I don't get paid. And it's measured over a long enough period of time that you can see whether 
there was real value added or not. So I joked that if, if I ever get fired from this job, the next job I wanted to do is to be a maker of 12-year-old Scotch whiskey so that it would be at least 11 and three quarters years before somebody knows if I actually know what I'm doing or not. But think about that. If your job really is to make 12-year-old Scotch whiskey, there is a discipline and there is a process and there is a craftsmanship and a, a time-tested way that would suggest that these are reasonable ways in which to make 12-year-old aged whiskey. So it's not like you just play around for 11 and three quarters years and then show up and try to do something. That's not going to work. But if that is really what you're trying to do is to make great 12-year whiskey, there are steps that you should do. And you need to be operating in a culture and environment where you're not going to be second-guessed or micromanaged or pulled off the task midstream because it really will take that amount of time before people could discern whether you were good at what you did or not. And I think that is one of the unique features of Markel's. We've tried very much to build the culture where people just have it in their bones and in their way of doing things. And we're trying to build something that has an indefinite time frame that lasts forever. And the way to do that is to think as much as possible like an owner, like you were trying to hand off a business to the next generation of your family or your closest friends that you really care deeply about. And you want to hand it off to them in a better way and in a better spot than the way it was when you got there. And as long as you can embed that in the people and the systems and the culture of things, I think you'll do very, very well. I don't know if you heard the Charlie Munger interview that took place earlier this week at Caltech. And he talked about, you know, in the investing world, it's more important to not be stupid than it is to be really smart. So I can see ways in which business breaks that sensation of long-term values and long-term thinking pretty clearly. Easy stories, stuffing inventory channels, doing unnatural acts to meet this quarter's budget, all of those sorts of things. You don't have to go far to find war stories about that, but you can just continue to orient yourself towards, look, if I take care of this customer, if I make them happy, if I do the very best I can for them, and I make a reasonable rate of return for doing so, that will compound to marvelous things over time. And there's absolutely nothing that should stop it. And if nothing stops it and positive compounding continues to occur, that produces epic results over time. I want to go back to that 2019 shareholder letter. There's this ominous sentence in there that says, barring any major catastrophe, we expect the same returns in 2020. And we both know 2020 has just been this unbelievable year full of uncertainty. How have you navigated your portfolio through this year? What has been the biggest change to your strategy? Thank you for reading the letter and thank you for, for pointing that out. They say uh, hindsight is always 2020. In this case, 2020, I hope we put that in the rearview mirror in so many ways, in ways way more profound than business or what happens at Markel. I'm talking about our society and our world. I hope we can get this in the rearview mirror and learn some important and profound lessons that will make life a better place. So that said, one of the positive features about 2020 is here we are, and we're in December and almost at the end of the year, and we're still here. While there have been epic, unforeseen challenges this year, the whole point of Markel was to be resilient. And the first order of business for any biological creature is to not die, survival. Because again, 
compounding cannot take place if the chain is interrupted. So yeah, we took some gut punches in terms of insured losses in the first quarter and Markel Ventures collection of businesses. There were a lot of businesses where we were deeply surprised and were dealing with unprecedented business conditions. So we had to figure it out. Obviously, in investment markets had a lot of volatility to them. But that said, we operated with enough margin of safety and with enough margin of error that even though these things took place that none of us had anticipated or specifically planned for or prepared for or had a good strategic plan about, it was okay. We lived to fight another day and answer the bell for the next round of the fight. And we went out and tried to take care of our people, tried to take care of our customers and operate in a prudent and reasonable way. And as the year has gone by, things have recovered quite nicely in any of the dimensions you want to talk about specific to the business of Markel, whether that's the insurance company results, whether it's the collection of Markel Ventures results, whether it's what's happening on the investment side. And all of that doesn't guarantee smooth sailing into 2021. But I certainly appreciate and think that this has been a real acid test and a real battlefield test of the fundamental architecture of the three engines we talk about here at Markel, where we try to run a good insurance business, we try to run good industrial and service businesses, and we try to invest the money thoughtfully. And if we do all of that and don't, again, use something like too much leverage, which would create fragility into the system, some years you compound at higher rates, some years you compound at lower rates. But as long as the train keeps moving forward, that's the definition of compounding. Well, in a year like 2020, it's easy to find yourself in triage mode where you're just showing up assisting positions. And therefore, I'm also curious to know what happened back in March 2020 when all those stocks went on sale. Did you have enough bandwidth to focus on new potential investments? Well, I think there are several layers behind your question and several layers in having a thoughtful answer to that. One is there's an important distinction between strategy and tactics. So in terms of the fundamental strategy of Markel and the three engines and running a profitable insurance business, running a profitable industrial and service collection of businesses and investing thoughtfully, that's strategy. And that hasn't changed one iota. And I don't anticipate any changes in that basic strategic level of design and architecture for Markel going forward. Now, tactically, any given day, you're presented with opportunities that are within that strategic framework. Yes, tactically, with perfect hindsight, I hate to use the word 2020 again, but with perfect hindsight, there are things that I would have done differently in March or April or May than what we did. And I think I will be justly and appropriately criticized for making some tactical errors through that time. But I felt my first and foremost responsibility was to be a steward of the capital and a long-term steward of the future of the Markel Corporation. So in looking at what possible rewards existed with different things and what possible risks were associated with different things, I chose to err on the side of caution. And at this point, again, tactically, there are some other actions that could have been taken, which would have resulted in better results this year. But they increased the likelihood of persistency for Markel and that we would be able to make subsequent tactical decisions in July and in August and in 2021 and in 2025 and in 2030. And that's what I thought was more important to do. I'd also add, again, this just gets to layers and it ties to the notion of what you talked about when 
you're starting in the business and being quantitative and wanting to you know hit some home runs to attract attention and uh, attract clients and get a pot of money to manage. IRR math highlights that sort of thing because there's a time dimension that the quicker your money comes back, the better your IRR is. Buffett once gave an example, and this is a 15 or 20-year-old example, where he said, you know, there's two bonds out there. One of them is their government bonds. One of them pays 8% and one of them pays 6%. And you know how old the example is when you're talking about government bonds, paid eight and six, and the audience wasn't just shocked and said, what country are you from? What are you talking about? Those were real interest rates that existed 20 years ago. And he said, so which one should you buy? And he said, you don't have enough information to answer that question because what you really need to answer that question comprehensively is a few more things. One, the 8% bond is a current coupon bond. So every six months, you're going to get a coupon payment on your 8% bond. Your 6% bond is a zero coupon bond. So the coupons are reinvested by definition at that 6% rate. Now, you don't know what's going to happen to interest rates. As it turns out, and again, Buffett in his folksy way, whether he meant to or not, kind of predicted the future pretty doggone well. The reinvestment rates, if you were buying government bonds, continue to go down. They've fallen off a cliff. So frankly, the answer to that question posed 20 years ago, you as an investor would have been better off buying the bond that had a 6% coupon than an 8% coupon. And that just doesn't seem normal or natural or intuitively correct. But what it speaks to is the persistency of the return for a long period of time at a reasonable rate. And there's a lot of retirees and people who have behaved very prudently who are faced with real challenges by the fact that there was this glitzy return to a retiree of 8% on a government bond. But that really wasn't the good investment to make. The better investment to make was the 6% that compounded for the next 30 years because it was a, a zero coupon bond. Another way of thinking about that, that's Aesop's fable, the tortoise and the hare. So it is so tempting to think that hares are better investors than tortoises. I suspect in many times they're way better traders, way better traders than tortoises. But oftentimes they're not as good an investor as what the tortoise is. And what the tortoise really does is earn a durable return over a long period of time. And that's the game I'm playing. That's what I think I have some skills at. I know I'm not fast like the hare, but I think I can be steady and enduring like the tortoise, and trying to find what it is that you're good at. And again, this is the distinction between so many of the people that you know I've heard on your podcast. They are, are way better at being fast than I am. So if I try to compete with them at that sort of stuff, I'm going to lose. They're going to beat me. But there's not that many people who really do it the way I do it. So I don't need the same skills as what they need. And by the way, it has, and I hope and trust, although it's not certain, will continue to produce very good returns for Markel and the people associated with it and really run the business, which really means taking care of people, whether that's our customers or whether it's our employees, for this institution to continue to grow in the way that it has and provide livings for so many people and provide valuable products and services. That's fun. That's uh, encouraging. That's uplifting. And that's what I'm trying to do. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. 
If you're looking for the right franchise concept at the right time, an iFlex Stretch Studio franchise is the business for you. iFlex is the newest franchise concept from the founders of the Joint Chiropractic. With over 200 licenses already awarded to our regional developers, there's never been a better time to own an iFlex franchise in your market. An iFlex Stretch Studio franchise offers its clients the best in professional-assisted stretching for one affordable price in one beautiful location. Even the Mayo Clinic says stretching can increase flexibility and improve your joint's range of motion, helping you move more freely. Prime regional developer opportunities and franchise locations are going fast. Don't miss this opportunity to get into this rapidly growing health and wellness business from the founders of The Joint Chiropractic. Find out more today. Call 888-994-3500. 539 or visit iflexpodcast.com. Call right now, 888-994-3539 or visit iflexpodcast.com. Kyle, you're connected with a ton of different investors and portfolio managers, and you're just really in the know on a lot of these things. How do you keep up with all the day-to-day headlines for your portfolio companies? Yeah, so I used to have a ton of issues with this, and that was until I started using Yahoo Finance. Really? What's so great about it? So Yahoo Finance is awesome. I have my whole portfolio entered and I can easily see all the top headlines to keep up with the recent news. And each day you get an overview of the major global events that might be moving the market. So I'm ready to easily pounce on any opportunities that come my way. What else can you do on Yahoo Finance's platform? They also have a number of cool features, including a tool that lets you link all of your investment accounts, analyst ratings, and independent research, as well as the ability to create customized charts. Well, now I know that the audience is really going to love this one. And I actually see they have 90 million monthly active users. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com. The number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. As many of you know, I love studying businesses and networking with business owners. The more I've studied businesses, the more I've realized that starting and scaling your business is easier than ever because of companies like Shopify. Did you know that Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S.? Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business, from their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify even helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms. What I personally love about Shopify is that it's the turnkey solution to kickstart and grow your business, and they are totally committed to giving you the necessary tools to succeed as a business owner. Plus, they have an award-winning customer support team there to help you every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com dot com slash WSB. That's all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash WSB now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. That's shopify.com slash WSB. All right, back to the show. Well, as Buffett likes to say, no one likes to get rich slowly. And I'm glad you brought up Buffett because he and Munger are very outspoken about not liking companies reporting EBITDA 
And in your 2019 letter, you point out that Markel Ventures uses EBITDA and referred to it as the least worst proxy to describe the sense of economic profitability. Could you please elaborate on your thoughts on EBITDA as a reporting metric and why you consider it to be the least worst metric? A couple of points. I'm not opposed to getting rich quickly. I just don't know how to do it. So therefore, I've embraced the idea of doing so slowly because I think I have a chance of doing that. So point number one. To your comments about EBITDA, again, yes, Buffett and Munger have written extensively. Munger is normally more colorful way, has spoken in very derogatory terms about EBITDA, and he's not wrong, but you have to dig one layer deeper. So if anybody's using EBITDA, a couple things. One, that is the language that exists in the world of businesses being bought and sold, especially in and out of the public markets. So because the community of people who own these businesses is talked to by people who use language, it's important for me to at least understand and recognize that language and how it works. Here's a long story, but I hope it makes the point. I don't know if the name Anatoly Dobrynin means anything to you. He was the Russian ambassador to the U.S., and I think he was in that job 30, 40 years. So he might have started with somebody like uh, Johnson and through Nixon and Ford and maybe went up to Clinton. I don't know, but he was in that job for a long time. And what made him especially skilled and talented at his job was he was in the West for a long enough period of time that he truly understood Western ways and Western language, Western values and Western culture. But he was Russian as well. And he truly understood and knew Russian ways, Russian language, Russian culture, such that he was able to communicate and be a bridge between those two worlds. That's the definition of what an ambassador's job is. So I take with humility and understanding the way in which Buffett and Munger would criticize the word EBITDA, because it is used in a world that's not their world. Okay. I think as an ambassador and somebody who needs to be able to communicate with that world, I need to understand the language and the terms. Point number one. Point number two, EBITDA is a word that in and of itself just doesn't tell you enough. It is a tool, and that tool can be used well and productively or not well. And the nature of the business that you're describing sort of gives you a pretty good sensation of what sort of shades of gray you should attach to someone using the word EBITDA. If you were talking about a steel mill, and that steel mill cost a billion dollars to build 10 years ago, and you're depreciating against that historical billion-dollar cost, which is what gap accounting would cause you to do, and then 20 years from now, you're going to need to build a new steel mill, it's not going to cost you a billion dollars to do it then. It's going to cost you $10 billion to make up a number. Well, you really should have been depreciating against the replacement cost, which is 20 not the historical cost, which is one. So if you're using EBITDA to describe the earnings and the cash flow generation of a business like that, you're kidding people. You're probably kidding yourself. So that's where EBITDA really falls off the rails, and it is not a good description at all. I'm looking at your get up there with the microphone and the headphones, and it brings to mind the picture of a radio station. And if you think about a radio station, and I actually worked as a DJ at a radio station when I was a teenager, and I remember sort of looking like you look right now with the setup and the microphone. If you're talking about a radio station, EBITDA is a very accurate tool to describe the cash flow generation of a radio station. 
especially if you're the person who bought it within the last couple of years, because you paid some price that was related to and derived from the cash flow characteristics of the business and the cash flow requirements, the capital spending requirements on a radio station. They're not zero, but they're not very much. I mean, you need to modestly update and keep your equipment up to date, but relative to the amount of money that the station makes, it's not the capital expenditures that make it good. It's the show, it's the talent, it's the energy, it's the programming, whatever, which is current period expense, not capitalized expense. So depending on which kind of business you're looking at, EBITDA is either a horrible description of what's really going on or a pretty good one. And if you look at the array of Markel Ventures businesses, I would say we are much more radio station-like than steel mill-like. And you don't just have to take my word for it. You can look at years of the financial reports, the public financial disclosures, and look at what the capital expenditures are, which are captured in depreciation, the D of EBITDA. So adjusting for amortization and backing out the purchase price, I think is legitimate. And that's really what EBITDA does. And the D in our case is de minimis. If you were to look at a business and you see the D number being big rather than small, then EBITDA, however big D is, that is exactly inversely proportionate to how accurate EBITDA is at conveying the underlying economics of the business. So you just have to dig a little deeper and think about it. Tom, going back to one of your four investment philosophy principles, you want to invest in a company that is run by management with integrity. How do you qualify such a qualitative fact? It's a spectacular question. And it has both quantitative and qualitative aspects to it. So quantitatively, if you look at a company and a management team that has produced pretty good results and they've done it over a period of years, that is a very good tell and marker that it's being run well. Because when customers are doing more business with you every year, there's more revenues and proportionate profitability. That is a marketplace stamp of approval that hey, this company is doing something for me. As I wrote, a great company is a company that does things for their customers rather than to their customers. And if you're serving your customers and doing things for them, that increases the odds that they'll come back and want to do business with you again and refer other people to you and your reputation will help you in in the marketplace. And a lot of that really does tie to that aspect of integrity. There's other aspects of it that are, are really a matter of quantitative feel. And I I don't think you should not trust your own judgments about whether you think people running these businesses are good people or not so good people and what are their motivations and styles. And trust your gut a little bit. Trust your visceral reactions to how you feel about people when you encounter them. And again, a, a business that has not been successful, that has not put reasonable, not perfect numbers, but not reasonable numbers on the books for a long period of time is one that One of the reasons for that is maybe they don't have that fundamental value that you're looking for. So, okay, move on. Look at something else. Right. And I've heard you talk about leverage and how that might be a key indicator for determining how much integrity the management has. Can you elaborate on that? I will. And indeed, and I want to give credit to uh, Shelby Davis uh, as I I do this. So in the very earliest years, when we were starting to buy uh, the Markel Ventures businesses and move outside the realms of insurance and buy these businesses that we had not had firsthand experience operating before. 
I remember being with Shelby and it was in Omaha uh, during one of the Berkshire meetings and the, the convening and running into people and just having a meal with people or having a drink with people or running into somebody at a, in a hallway or a bar that we did. And he and I were talking about this new strategic initiative of Markel to indeed look at what Berkshire had done and go from passive minority stakes and businesses to controlling stakes and, and owning businesses. And uh, I was sort of asking him about his experience. He's older and wiser guy than I was and trying to, hone in on exactly that that point about integrity and his response as shelby often could just put his finger right on it he said well if you want to buy a, a business that's run that's not run by crooks buy one where they don't have any debt and so i, I leaned in and asked him about that he says think about it when when you're financing a business with debt uh you're borrowing money somebody else's money to run your business if you're financing business with equity, well, that's your money. Now, crooks don't want to steal their own money. They want to steal somebody else's money. So it's actually a tell, not perfect, but it is a tell that generally speaking, businesses which are financed largely with equity tend to have a different character and nature of people running them than businesses that are financed with a lot of debt because the risk reward for the managers is different when you have a heavily debt financed business than when you have a heavily equity financed business. If, if it's equity and it's yours and it's your family's assets, and if you lose that money, I mean, you've lost everything. You've, you've lost your livelihood, you've lost your business, you've lost your reputation, and it is awful. If you run a business and it's externally financed and it's not really your equity capital in the game, it's not great, but you can move on. And there's countless examples of that. And, and given the fact that I feel like I've attached my, myself and my reputation to this business, I want partners and colleagues who feel the same way about it. I don't want to attach myself to people who, are, who might run things into a wall and not care as deeply and as much as I do. I'm not saying we won't make mistakes. We do make mistakes. We, we make them regularly. And I pray that we never get into a period where we don't make any mistakes because that means we're not doing enough. We, we need to be willing to take risks and try things, but let's be thoughtful and, and prudent. And um, as, as our, our former chair and, and Alan Kirshner used to say, let's make some new mistakes, not make the same ones. With that said, I would like to speak about Warren Buffett again, because he has countless times been asked about macro. And yes, he sometimes gives a few hints here and there about some of his macro beliefs, but most often, he drives home the point of being oblivious to the macro environment. A good business should be able to not only survive, but prosper during almost any kind of macro environment. That is his thesis. But given today's extreme environment, we just talked about that, for instance. The debt levels are an extreme level and it's getting worse every day. Does macro weigh into your investment strategy at all? It weighs. That Buffett, again, he talks about sort of the quadrants and Think about the one axis, how important something is, and on the other axis, how knowable it is. So the macroeconomic environment is on that axis of things that are really, really important, but it's not knowable. So he tries to spend his time on things that are knowable and important. The macroeconomic environment is amazingly challenging right now. 
Charlie Munger, in his interview earlier this week in Caltech, just talked about these are unprecedented conditions in the world of finance. I mean, there is no human history that speaks to and captures what's going on in finance right now. So there can be macroeconomic forces that are incredibly important that may cause some specific investment decisions we make to not work out. I get that and I understand that. But I, and as frustrating or as challenging or as uh, sort of excess stomach acid producing as it might be, I can't control it. And I don't know how to really use those forces to my advantage. So I try to acknowledge those forces and make sure they don't destroy me. I joked recently, I said, I looked at some of the things, if those stocks were countries, they'd be Switzerland. And if you think about Switzerland, yeah, they don't win wars, but they don't lose wars because they don't fight wars. I'm trying to make sure that the things I own are not caught up and disrupted. And I'm willing to not be the disruptee as long as I'm not the disrupted. And to think about the things that, I mean, again, we've joked in this time about the notion of 12-year-old Scotch whiskey, but one of our long-term holdings has been Diageo. And they are the makers of Johnny Walker whiskey. And you look at Johnny Walker Black, I point out that bottle and I say, look at the label, look closely at the label. One of the things you'll see on it, it says, since 1820. Wow. Well, what kind of things have happened since 1820? I don't know. Make your own list. Civil war, jet engines, telephones, the internet, washing machines, penicillin. Make whatever list you want. Modern society, a lot has been done since 1820. And yet that brand still exists. And I don't know if you know the backstory of Johnny Walker, but Scotch whiskey, not unlike, you know, in its day, the tax authorities, the governmental role created a moonshine industry in Scotland, just as the case here. And Johnny Walker himself was a pharmacist and he was trusted in his community. He had integrity. So just like if you buy bad moonshine and you drink it and you could go blind, the reason people bought whiskey from Johnny Walker is because they trusted him. He had integrity. That brand was of value. And the brand still is of value today. And the fundamental reason it is is because you as a consumer trust it. You know what you're getting. So if you're an investor and in 1820, you know Johnny Walker and you know his worth and skills and integrity and thoughtfulness and long-term orientation as a human being, and he has this business that he's starting up, you could not have predicted the macroeconomic things that have happened since 1820. You didn't know there was going to be a civil war. You didn't know there were going to be jet airplanes. You didn't know there were going to be telephones. You didn't know there were going to be smartphones. So all of those things happened, and they altered the landscape in many, 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 many ways. But you could have made some judgment about, was this a good, thoughtful guy or not? Well, that was the important decision. And by the way, sometimes you're going to be wrong. And this gets back to the math and the dynamics of having a portfolio. The things that you were wrong about, if there was Johnny Walker and 15 other people that you decided to back at that particular time, and 14 of them faded away and proved not to be as able and as good as what Johnny Walker was and what he did, it's okay. All of those 14 things could have gone to zero. Complete, epic, utter wipeouts. The amount of money you've made by being able to compound with something over a long period of time, swamps the amount of money you lost where you got it wrong. So it's a very asymmetric risk reward. To invest in something you think is enduring offers tremendous returns 
especially compared to the small stuff you're staking to try to get there. I am very, 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 very lucky in that I invest within the context of the Marco Corporation. And if you look at the history of our business, with very rare exceptions, and there's been exceptions at periods of time, this has been a profitable business all the way along, especially when you start looking at you know any annual year. Generally speaking, this business has produced an underwriting profit and our industrial and services businesses have produced positive cash flow as well. What that gives me is cash flow. And that cash flow invested in a reasonable, persistent, dollar-cost averaging way enables you to sort of buff out the times you were wrong. I might have bought something and been wrong immediately for the first six months because the business cycle went in a different direction or made that particular investment go through a tough patch. But if I'm buying more six months from now and six months after that and six months after that, it smooths itself out. And a dollar cost averages such that if I'm more right about the fundamental nature of whether that's a good business or not, the passage of time plus cash flow enables the real returns to take place. And it comes from the judgment about the business itself. So going back to the 1986 initial shareholder letter from Markel Corp, it talks about using a strategy of specialization and diversification. And I'm curious about the diversification piece, because diversification is known as a decent, prudent strategy for mitigating risk. But even Buffett would say that risk comes from not knowing what you're doing, and those who don't know what they're doing should diversify. So naturally, he suggests that most retail investors should just stick with index funds. And I'm curious if you agree with him on that. I think index funds are one of those examples in investing where a great idea gets done to the point where it gets overdone and ultimately becomes a bad idea. I don't know where we are in that spectrum when it comes to indexing, but I suspect we are somewhere along that path. So indexing in its early days, when John Bogle pioneered it, I think it made all the sense in the world, and he was exactly right. But where we are now, you have a lot of money, quote unquote, invested in things without a fulsome understanding of what it is one actually owns why you actually own it, and whether fundamentally you would think that's something you want to do or not. And it just seems to me that that is probably a bridge too far, and there is value in trying to understand, comprehend, and think about whether you want to be associated with a business or not. Not to mention the risk of liquidity too, right? Because if everyone's in an index fund and something goes south at the market and every one of those people are trying to sell their index fund, what happens to the index fund price? I think you can answer your own question. <laughs> I think I'm going to agree with that. <laughs> well, Tom, we cannot thank you enough for coming on the show. I know our listeners are going to get an incredible amount of value from this wide-ranging discussion with all the wisdom and insight that you brought. I encourage people to go check out Markel Corporation, read the shareholder letters. This is a wonderful company with high integrity. And I know I really enjoyed it. So I really hope we can do this again soon. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. I appreciate the opportunity and we'll do the best we can. All right. So as we're letting Tom go, just one more quick thing. Please remember to subscribe to our podcast feed. We know a lot of you are listening to this episode but are not subscribing. Please make sure to do so. And every weekend, you'll learn more about investing from amazing guests like Tom Gaynor. All right. That was all the train I had for you for this week's release of the Investors Podcast. Preston and I will be back next weekend with a new interview with an insightful guest. Thank you for listening to TIP. 
To access our show notes, courses, or forums, go to theinvestorspodcast.com. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decisions, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by the Investors Podcast Network. Written permissions must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.